0: Several weeks ago we began a series um, which is not something you hear a whole lot about anymore called The Separated Life. Another term would be Consecrated Life. And and we we read through the first, um, this is out of the the sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount and it really is not a sermon, it's a teaching to his disciples. And we're going to pick up here uh, starting in verse um, 13. He's talking to His disciples here. He's not talking to the general crowd. He's talking to the disciples. And, and he, what, what I saw in here, and this was really not the purpose for teaching this series, but it really applies, is we live in a very difficult time, a time when when it's getting darker and darker and darker. I mean, we just had this week another mass shooting. I mean, just, you know, the, we almost get jaded to, oh, okay, that's another one. And, and, and the times are getting darker. The standards of our society, moral standards, are just falling crumbling around us and 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 it's literally what what i think it's isaiah said you know truth has fallen in the street people have trampled they don't care about truth anymore there's a generation out there that's being raised to be told there is no such thing as truth not just that truth is what i mean there just is no such thing as truth of course when you go to the bank or you go to buy something they don't work on that theory they still work on the theory that one plus one is two. They use math, which is based on truth, and it doesn't vary. So uh, I tried that. I used to keep my checkbook that way, but it doesn't work. So, <laughs> so I now use the real math. All right. And so what we're learning is that God has a way for... not us. Not, His will is not that the church survive in this time. This is why we're here. We're not here to survive in the difficult time. We're here to accomplish His will in this time. And so that's what we're learning. But in the process, we're we're learning some side things that come out of it. So Jesus says this to His disciples, knowing some of the things that we're going to face. Look at verse 13. He said, You are the salt of the earth, but if anyone loses his salt, how will it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what we saw in the beginning is what he's talking about there is that salt by its very nature is different than the food. In fact, he says when the salt no longer is different than the food. It's lost its purpose. So it ought to be just thrown out. I'm not throwing us out. It's just lost its purpose. So salt's purpose is carried out by being different from what's around it. And one of the concerns I have about the church today is we have been lulled into an attitude and a belief that we are somehow to be like the world. I mean, there's tremendous pressure on us to be like the world. I heard... Who has there a book I was reading? I've forgotten who it was by. And it was uh, made this comment that, that the only fish that, go, that, that swim downstream are dead ones. <laughs> Live fish swim upstream by and large. And that's where they spawn and that's where, they, you know, that's where they, they multiply is by swimming against the current upstream. But what Jesus is saying here is he said, you are salt in the world. And salt is made to... its function comes by being different. And there's so much pressure on us to be like the world, either by being threatened, we're going to be arrested, or just by wanting to be accepted. We'll talk about that in a week or so. The pressure that's on us, just with this built into our flesh to be accepted. And, and the enemy uses that to water the church down. To water the church down. I mean, that's the history of the church. In the first century, as you look through the book of Acts, Satan's unloaded on the church, tremendous persecution. And all it did was strengthen the church because what the persecution did is it made clear the difference between the salt and the meat. It made the difference clear. There was no middle ground. And and not only that, when he brought the pressure down, it spread it's what spread Christianity because they went throughout the normal world at the time, but they went taking their salt with them. Yeah. Okay. They took their saltiness with them, their difference with them. So Satan changed his scheme. And somewhere around 333 or 334, somewhere in there, A.D., the Roman emperor Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity, actually was legalized before him. He made it the official religion of the state, And that's what worked. Because now, everybody was a Christian. You didn't have to be different to be a Christian. You just were a Christian because you were a citizen of Rome. So you didn't need to stand out anymore. There didn't need to be any contrast because there was no pressure on you. And that's the device Satan is using today. To try to make the church look so much like the world. And then where there are differences... He has us fighting like the world, using the world's devices and techniques. I better not go off on that or we won't get into this. And so that's what we learned the first night when we talked about this. So if you're a Christian, part of being a Christian means you are called to be different than the world around you. And it's important to understand that because otherwise we're going to always feel like, well, somehow there's something wrong with me. I'm not fitting in with the people at work. You know, they don't like me. Yes, they don't like you. (laughs) Praise God. Now that we don't want to be unliked. (laughs) That's a sign they see something about you that stirs them up. But if our, if, if our expectation is how, oh, oh, the purpose of my life is to be loved and accepted and just secure, you're in the wrong, you're, you're down, you're in the wrong lane. You're in the right lane, you just need to realize what lane you're in. So we saw that that difference is an important part of carrying out our purpose. And the way to be victorious in the dark and difficult times is to step into the purpose for which God's called you and do it with all your heart. And I'm not talking about whether you're a pastor or you're a teacher or you're this. I'm talking about what your purpose is to be salt in this world and to be light in the darkness. That's your basic purpose and my basic purpose. And everything else comes out of that. Then we learned that what it means last time we talked about, all right, we're talking about living a separated life. What does it mean to be a, live a separated life? Well, we started out by talking about what it does not mean. It does not mean isolated. Isolated means isolated. Separated means separated. And you can't be salt in a world if you just stayed in the salt cellar. You know the thing you shake on it? That's not, because salt in a salt cellar, salt cellar, (laughs) is hanging out with other salt. Other salt doesn't need salt to know it's salt. If I were to light a flashlight in this room right now, you might be able to see it's lit, but it won't have any impact. Why? Because the rest of the room is lit. So light among light doesn't produce any greater effect. It doesn't add any significance. But out in the darkness it does. When you go out in that parking lot and you turn your car on and those headlights come on, those headlights create a significance in the darkness and they allow you to get home safely. So isolated isn't separated. It may be separated, but it's not what the Bible means by it because when you're isolated, you're not having an effect on anyone around you. The second thing we learned that, I, that separated does not mean is it doesn't mean weird. I've known too many Christians that thought being weird was being separated. Well, you may end up separated. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to say this anyway. <laughs> it's Wednesday night. We are, we are now forced in, in the lunchroom at SCA to have a section for people that have peanut allergies. I guess airborne peanut dust can trigger that allergy. And so they have seats, they have, they have signs that are put on the seats saying, nut-free zone. <laughs> I said, I want some of those. <laughs> Listen to me. Being weird does not advance the gospel. Most of the time, being weird just attracts attention to you. And most people that are being weird ultimately are trying to draw attention to themselves. And many times not, not purposefully. That's just what's going on. That's their flesh. What does it mean? We ended up by looking in Matthew 6. At, what it means is what your heart is seeking after. What your heart is seeking after we saw in Matthew 6:19 that you can't serve God and things your heart can't be seek that whole discussion in there is seek first the kingdom of God seek him first because when your heart is seeking him first first, then somehow it's going to produce in you a difference in you. You're going to stand out from other people, because the people around you most likely aren't seeking Him first, they're seeking other things first, but when you seek Him first, you will begin to stand out, because as you seek Him first, He's going to begin to reveal Himself through you. All right, and that's what we've covered so far. Tonight what we're going to begin to get into is is what the real issue is here. Because if you don't understand what we're going to begin to talk about tonight, you'll, you'll see that you'll think of being separate as just something I've got to make. It's, you know, it's this hard thing to do. You know, it's going to be this difficult thing I've got to go through. Basically, it means I'm going to be alone. People are going to laugh at me. And, and what you're going to find is you may have the strength to do that for a little while, but under pressure, you'll give in unless you're just an exceptionally strong person. But if you understand what's why we're separated, what what it's a result of and what it really means, why He's called us to live a separated life. Remember, separated doesn't mean out of the world, it means in the world, but more like Him than the world. See, people hear separated life and they tend to automatically think, oh, what do I got to give up? That means I can't, wear, you know, I, I can't wear certain clothes. That means I can't watch TV. That means I can't go to the movies. And, you know, There was a holiness movement several generations back, and they understood holiness is all, all that you can't do. And the problem with flesh is the more you tell, you tell it you can't do something, the more it wants to do it. It's called dieting. When you're told you can't have chocolate cake, that's all you think about. Because the moment you tell your flesh it can't do something, it's going to focus on that. And see, God, this is an important principle to understand. God does not primarily motivate through negatives by saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. God brings positives into our life and those positives require choices that make us choose something right over something wrong. And you keep choosing what's right and you lose your appetite for what's wrong. Because what's right, what God has satisfies. What we're learning on Sunday morning is Jesus brought to this woman at the well and said, look, if you knew who I was, you'd ask of me, and I would give you a water that when you drink of it, it would become a source of living water in you. You'd never thirst again. You'd never have an emptiness, a hollowness, a loneliness in your life again. You'd never need to seek after men again. You'd never need to seek after drugs. You'd never need to seek after the things of the world to satisfy that longing because I would satisfy that longing, and I would be a source of that springing up in you new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. So He wasn't saying, look, don't do things. He was saying, I want to give you something that when you taste of this, you won't have an appetite anymore for the things that you've craved after. That's God's method. That's God's method. And we'll see it more clearly as we get into this. So it's important to understand what this is all about as we get into this. All right. Now go with me to John chapter 15. And you've heard me say this before, but to me, these chapters in here 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are so powerful because they are his last instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross. His final word before his whole basis of his relationship with them changes. So these are important instructions. He's been teaching them for over three years, and now he's calling them to something. They're at a place where they have potentially a greater understanding. They still don't get it because in here they say, oh, now we finally get it. And he says, well, you don't quite have it yet. But he's also laying this down for us. John 15 is all about, I am the vine, true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Here we are, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself by its own effort. the branch does not have the source of life in it. The branch, no matter how much it wants to, cannot bear fruit. It does not have the capacity to bear fruit. But it has a role in the bearing of fruit. It cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. A branch cannot produce fruit unless it is vitally connected to the trunk because the life-giving sap that's needed to produce, to join with the, the leaves on the end and with the light that's in the air to produce the fruit that life-giving sap comes through the the trunk and flows out through the branch. So the branch is essential because it's the conduit through which this life-giving force flows. So without the branch, there's no connection with the leaves at the end. The trunk can't produce fruit apart from the branch. And the branch can't produce fruit apart from the trunk. And that's what so many branches are out there trying to do produce fruit apart from the trunk. So here's where it comes down to. Notice what he's talking about. He's talking about bearing fruit, but he says the where you bear fruit is to focus on the other end of the branch. There's two ends of a branch, you know. Just, there's no trick question here. All right? There's the skinny end where the fruit comes out. And there's the or the, 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 the wide end that's intended to be connected to the trunk. Now, we're, you know, I'm not a botanist, but I understand that much. And so, so, but notice the end he's talking about. He says we're to bear fruit, but what we're told to do is make sure that as a branch we're vitally connected to the vine which is the source of the life That's gonna flow through us to produce the fruit. So, what we're to focus on first, before we try to produce the fruit, is we're to focus on a relationship with Him primarily. This is why what we're learning on Sunday is so vital. This is why true worship is so important. This is why what we saw in that video Sunday is so vital. They're really connected with each other. It's coming together into His presence to seek Him, to ask Him, to call upon Him, coming into His presence to open our heart and to worship Him. It's focusing on the the vine end of the branch, the connection with Him. He can't produce anything through us unless we're... That's true of Prayer. The reason why so many people, one of the reasons why so many people's prayers aren't answered is they're trying to do it mentally. They read a book on prayer, they take principles, and I've done this take principles and go out and try to produce that with their, by going through the same thing that Brother Hagin went through or somebody else went through that you know, produced fruit. But what you forget they did is they abided in the vine, they had developed a relationship with him. We can go back and show you early in Matthew 5. He's talking about prayer. He says, don't you know that your Father knows what you need before you ask? He talks about a relationship with a Father. Then they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And what does he start out by saying? Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus prayed. Jesus praised. Jesus worshiped out of the relationship that he had with his Father. So when he came to his father with a request, he knew what his father would do. John chapter 11, Jesus goes over to Lazarus' tomb. He's going to... You know, have you noticed when Jesus prayed over situations, he very rarely talked to God about it? Have you noticed he spoke to them? And in John 11, you see a clear understanding of this because he stands at the tomb of Lazarus and he's about to call, raise a man from the dead who's been in there four days and stinketh. What's what's said. They didn't embalm him. He stinketh. <clears throat> and Jesus stands at the doorway of the tomb, at the stone, before it's rolled away. And he's, now he talks to his father. He says, Father, I'm going to ask you in front of them so that when you do this, they know that you did it. This is the next thing he says, because I know that you always do what I say. In other words, I have such a living relationship with you, and I know you so well that I know that whatever I say, you're going to do. He didn't need to say, if it be your will, because he knew his father. He knew what his father would do. Remember we've looked and we've talked before about Psalm 103 where, where the psalmist says, the children of Israel knew God's acts, his deeds, but Moses knew his ways. He knew God. He'd seen him. He talked to him and once he talked to him and came down off that mountain it changed him you couldn't talk him out of things even though everybody people rebelled against him it didn't change what he believed because he knew his god daniel says what is it 11:23 they that know their god they that know their god not they that speak the word that's good But to speak the Word and not know the author of the Word comes out of your head. They that know their God shall do great exploits. Prophets of old like Elisha and Elijah spoke and things happened. James 5 uses Elisha as an example. And they didn't have the Spirit of God in them the way we do. They didn't have the Word that we have but they knew God. They had spent time abiding in Him, spent time with Him, spent time seeking Him with all their heart. So they knew what He'd do. They knew when they spoke, He'd answer. So Jesus is saying, here's the key. And the devil knows this too. This is why he keeps us so busy doing everything else but this. I know I've shared this with you before. I came on staff here 14 years ago. I thought, wow. I mean, my practice what I practice law, my, my practice, my personal practice, was that I would bring my lunch usually, and on my lunch break, I would take my Bible, go into my office or somewhere else, uh, and I would just read my Bible and eat my sandwich, and then when that was over, I would just go off and walk the streets and just pray. Just spend time with him because I had a busy schedule. I also spent time with him when I got up in the morning. I got up extra early. I got up at five o'clock and an hour's drive to work. So I said, Wow, I'm going to work in church. My office is going to be over there. The sanctuary's here. Wow, this is wonderful. I found it was infinitely harder to pray once I got on staff here than when I was practicing law because I got so busy doing the work of the Lord important things, answering phone calls, dealing with this crisis, handling this situation, that I come to the end of the day. I never got in here. I still have to fight that. Why? Because the enemy wants to keep you so busy. He'll keep you busy doing the Lord's work. He loves to have me fill with my day, just doing all kinds of things for the Lord and not spend time with Him. It's a step of faith to set aside all those important things and to do the only thing that's vital. Because that's what he's saying here. He's saying what's vital. Vital means absolutely necessary to live. Like breathing, that's vital. Eating, at some point, is vital. Water in your system is vital. Those are Vital means having to do with life, living, survivor. The only thing he says ever that's vital is spending time with him. The only thing that's vital to our survival and success as a Christian, the only thing that's vital to be able to have answered prayer, the only thing that's vital that he ever says to producing fruit is abiding in him. Now, abiding in him means more than just, you know, sitting in your basement or wherever you pray, sitting in here or wherever and spending, oh God, I'm with you. It, it literally means to be joined to him, to be one with him because you see the branch doesn't spend time with the, with the trunk. The branch doesn't spend time in the vineyard around the trunk. The branch is vitally connected to the trunk so that the branch and the trunk are one. And that's what he's talking about here. Now let's go over, because I didn't forget what we're talking about. Let's go over now to... He goes on and teaches several things in here about his commandment. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide on you, ask whatever you want. Imagine it's Jesus saying, whatever you want. But I don't know if it's his will. If you abide in him, you'll know what his will is. That's so often used as an excuse. He even said that on the video Sunday. So often used as an excuse, if it be thy will. Find out if it's his will. And why would you want something that wasn't his will? So if you're not sure, don't ask. But don't let that be a hindrance to holding you back. Because to half-ask is to not ask at all. To do anything with God halfway is to not do it at all. And then he says, talks about, as your Father loves me, so have I loved you. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we've talked about that on Sunday. This is my commandment, that you love one another. All right, having said all that, he says it again in verse 17. Now verse 18. Seems to be changing subjects, but he's really not. If the world hates you, we're talking about being different now. We're talking about being separated. If the world hates you, know this, that it hated me before it hated you. And here's why. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So when people react to your difference, that's a sign that they're recognizing you're not like them, that you've been... I'm not talking about being weird now. talking about being like Christ. That's a sign, excuse me, that you've been taken out of the world... And they're recognizing that. And I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember verse 20, The word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. For if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you, look at me, because they don't like you. Now, look at your Bible. That's not what it says. They won't do that to you because they don't like you. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know Him who sent me. Now, he's going to go on to explain in 17, and he said it elsewhere, that he and his father were one. He's also said, I only do what my father tells me to do, say what my father tells me to say, and I only do what I see him do, or I only do what I do exactly, I imitate him. In chapter 14, Philip comes to him and says, Master, show us the father. He says, Philip, how long have you been with me? Don't you understand if you've seen me You've seen the father. See the religious people in that day thought they knew who God was. But Jesus proved to them and that's why they didn't like him. They proved to them that he did they didn't know what God was like. Because he acted just like God and they wanted to kill him. He came to fulfill what God said he was being sent to fulfill and they hated him. Why? Because he didn't fit the image of what they wanted God to be like. But all he did was exhibit to them what his father was like. Why? Because he was an exact replica of his father. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that. The exact representation of his father's image and the outshining of his nature. Because he and his father were one, they couldn't see his father because his father was in heaven, but they could see his father when they saw him because he was exactly like his father. And because he was exactly like his father, they treated him on the same basis they were treating God. And now he's saying, as he just said earlier, you and I are one. So now that same principle is going to hold true. When we come to Christ and abide in Him, we're one with Him. We've been joined to Him. That means whatever He is, we are. It also means whatever people think of Him, they're going to think of us. And that's what He's saying here. He's saying they're going to treat you on the basis of what they think of me. Why? Because they just don't like you? No, because you are like me, because you're joined to me, because you're one with me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. That's what the world's like. I mean, they do have sin, it's just not pointed in their face. But now they have no excuse for their sin. That's why the world doesn't like the church. And that means we're doing our job when they don't like us. Now, that I mean, doesn't we're supposed to go out there and irritate people and offend people. It doesn't mean that at all. But we can't be afraid of being different. That's what the saltiness is. The saltiness is we represent Him. The light is we represent Him. And whatever He means to them is what you're going to mean to them. And there's some people that when they see who He is, they'll run to Him because He's Savior. There's some people that have got mad at Him because His very existence points a standard. That's what this whole society is battling right now. It doesn't want standards. Our youth director tonight is talking to the youth downstairs about truth. Nobody ever had to teach me growing up what truth was and how to defend truth. But we have to do that now because they're being taught in schools. The whole philosophy of the world right now is everything's relative. There really is no truth. But it's hip, they're hypocrites because they live their life by truth in every other way, in practical things of life. Lie to them and see what they do. Lie to your boss, unless you work here. I mean as an experiment if you you know if you know just somebody that you know is new age or you know into this you know postmodernism, lie to them and see what they do They'll get mad at you because you didn't tell them the truth I didn't think there was such a thing right. if there's no such thing in truth then I can lie to you and it doesn't matter so on the one hand in the practical things of life they have to believe in truth because there's no other way to function There's no other way to communicate or have anything in common if we're both not having some common denominator which we call truth. We may not always agree on what it is, but at least we're seeking it. So the only reason they remove that from the discussion is because truth bothers people. Why? Because it points out to them what they're doing wrong. That's the whole battle of taking the Ten Commandments out of school, taking the commandment. Why? Because it requires something. It's a reminder. It's like I don't like speed limit signs. No, I'm not saying I don't, but I mean... Just take them all down. I don't, you know... Because they remind me that I can't go over 70 or 85 miles an hour. But there are guys out there in funny-looking cars that if I do... They'll try there's consequences. Well, there's consequences to breaking God's commandments. There's consequences to living your own way. So what 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 he's saying here is they're not gonna like you because you stand for me and I stand for a standard. And Isaiah, he's called a rock. He's either the rock which is the foundation on which you build your life, or he's a stumbling stone over which you fall and are broken. It's one or the other to you. He's a rock. He's the foundation on which God bases everything. And to you, that foundation, that rock, is either the foundation of your life on which you build your life, or it is the thing you stumble over and you're broken over. It's your choice which it is. But you can't avoid it. And he's saying, we, because we represent him, remind people every day of that standard. And they want to get rid of it. but they can't. They may get rid of it for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, but there's going to come a day when they come face to face with that rock. There's going to come a day when they come face to face with the one we represent. And at that point, it's too late. And that's why we're here. Verse 23. He who hates me hates my Father also. Why? Because they're one. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. it would be pointed out to them. But now they have both seen, they've seen and both hated me and my Father. Now if you told the Pharisees that they hated God, they would have just laughed at you. Because they'd made a God of their own. They'd made Him into what they wanted Him to be. He was no longer the true and living God that had a relationship with Israel. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled that was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Here's what this comes down to. The reason they hated Jesus is because when they saw him, they saw the Father. And they didn't like, it. pointed out their sin to them. Well, Jesus, they can't see him here anymore. But we are the body of Christ. We are, you are, when you came to Christ, I'm going to go through some scriptures quickly here. When you came to Christ, you were your your sins were washed away with, the, with His blood, and then you were joined yeah. to Him. So a lot of people don't understand. You were joined to Him. Ephesians two says we were seated with Him in heavenly places. It doesn't. I used to have this image that that here's Jesus, here's the, the Father. I got to do it this way. The Father sitting here on the throne. And Jesus is sitting right next to him. And then maybe there's Peter and there's John, or maybe it was John and then Peter. And then there's Paul and then there's Bartholomew and then there's Thaddeus and then there's all these other people. Somewhere way over there is this John. Until one day I was reading it and I realized what he's saying there. No. we we're seated with the right hand of God in Christ. I'm going to give you some scriptures. If you, if you really want to get a hold of this, there's a little mini book in there called In Him in the bookstore. We have a, little, a few of them I checked today. Acts 17, 28 says, In Him we live and move and have our being. There's many more than these. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The only way you get to be a, a born again is to be in Christ. joined together with Him. That's why He calls us His body. Ephesians says in several places, He's the head and we're the body. My body, my, my body doesn't have an identity crisis between my head and the rest of my body. This is my body. So why don't I don't say, well, that's just my head and these are my hands. This is my body. So if somebody walks across the room quickly and steps, it's my toe they stepped on. That's why Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, notice he didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me. Jesus was in heaven. He's talking from heaven. But he was going to arrest believers in Damascus. And Jesus said, whatever you do to them, you've done to me. Why? Because we're one. They're in me and I'm in them. Read John 17. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. What makes you a new creation is you're in him and he's in you. Go down four more verses. Verse 21 says, He who knew no sin, that's Christ, became sin, became our sin, so that we, who knew plenty of sin, might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin on himself and paid for it so he could legally take his righteousness and put it on us. I I want to tell you what that verse says. So that we might become Listen carefully. Not righteous. So that we might become the righteousness of God. I want to say that again. Because we, we water it down in our thinking. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become righteous is what we hear. That's not what it says. Because it's an exchange. He took your sin... And gave you his righteousness. That's how you can become a child of God. You can't get it, become a child of God because he cleans you up nice and pretty. You can't walk into heaven in your righteousness as good as he could have made it. You can only get in there and have free and open access to the Father as a son because you're wearing his righteousness. But there's more to the verse. That we might become the righteousness of God because He didn't take off His robe of righteousness and give it to you. That verse says that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's because when you came to Christ, whether it's here, whether it was in your living room, whether it was somewhere else, when you confessed Christ as your Savior and you gave your life to Him and he, he became your Savior, literally what happened, the way this happened is the Spirit of God came inside of you. He's what joins you to Him. That's why Paul in Ephesians talks about the unity of the Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. And the same spirit that's in him is in you. That's what joins you to him. It's not a physical joining. It's a spirit joining. So you are his righteousness. Why? He didn't lose it when you got it. You got his righteousness because you became joined to him who is righteous. That's how you became a child of God because you're joined to him who is the child of God. So everything you have with God is because you've been joined and made one with him. That's why he said, Abide in me. I put you together with me. Now live in it. Amen. Romans eight one says, There is therefore now no condemnation. Who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians two ten says, We are his workmanship created. In Christ Jesus, not separate from him. In him, you have no identity of your own. And that's the trouble. That's what struggle we struggle with. We struggle with our identity. You lost it when you came to Christ. Paul learned this secret, we'll talk about it a little later on. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. What's the I that was crucified? My identity, my self-independence, who I am apart from anything. I'm stand up for my own rights. I, those were crucified with Christ, just like His were on the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. I've been crucified with Christ. Is that the end of it? No. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Ephesians 1 7 says, In whom we have redemption. Your redemption's because you're in Him. You have nothing in God apart from Christ. It's not like we're a bunch of individuals out there that God's blessing. No, when you came to Christ, He joined you to Him. Ron, when you came to Christ, He joined you to Him. Danny, when you came to Christ, He joined you to Him. And therefore, if you're joined to Him and Ron's joined to Him, guess what? We're joined to each other. Ooh, that's the part we have trouble with. This is why it matters so much to God how well we get along with each other. It's like your thumb and your index finger fighting with each other. It is. It's called dysfunction. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, but of him you are in Christ who of God has made us wisdom and goes on to say the other things. All right. Then there are many more we could use. So everything we have with God as a Christian, everything, our identity, our salvation, our ability to commune with God, everything we have with God is because we are in Christ. That means whatever He is, we are. Think about that one for a while. Whatever He has, This is the essence of covenant. If you take the course on the blood covenant in in the um, school of ministry, you'll learn this. The essence of covenant, the benefits of it, but the essence of covenant is the two exchange their identities and become one. That's what happens when you're married. That's what happened to us 46 plus years ago. I'm joined to her. She's joined to me. Well, you get a hold of that and it changes you. See, so many people are having mad trouble because they're concerned with their rights. I lost my rights 46 years ago. I didn't lose them. I gave them up. Willingly. Then why are we holding on to it? I gave up my life for her. She gave up her life for me. Boy, you get a couple... I've never had a couple of marriage characters saying, you know, problem is I'm trying to love her more. I'm trying to love him more. I'm trying to, you know, I want to give more of myself. No, I want to give more... I've never seen that happen. It's usually the other way around. She's not doing this. He's not doing this. And my answer is, I thought you were married. You're not married. You're just living together. Marriage means you gave yourself up. You died to who you are and what you wanted to do you died to that old lifestyle you died to those choices you used to have and the same thing when you came to Christ you're in Him now here's what that means to us and we'll have to end here because everything we have with God as a Christian is because we've been joined to Him that means whatever He is we are whatever He can do we can do that means He makes up for our weaknesses and our lack. If you ever go to a nice clear pool, it may be an like above ground pool, but you know, a nice, nice crystal clear pool, and you take a bottle of indelible ink out, and you pull it out, and you take that drop of black indelible ink and you drop a couple of drops in that crystal clear pool what happens to the ink? it gets absorbed in the clear water doesn't it? that's what happened to your sins when you came into Christ your weaknesses are absorbed in Him your shortcomings are absorbed in Him that's how you can come before God that's how you can come with boldness to the throne of grace not because you're some special, special child it's because you're in Him it's you're in Him. Now, here's the other side of that. And this is where we'll close. In the same way that what He is, I am, what people think of Him is what they're going to think of me. Ever have this experience that you're talking to somebody and you know, you're, you're trying to build up to witnessing to them and you maybe talk about God and they'll talk about God. But the moment you mention Jesus, things change change and here's how they change because you can talk about god and you can talk about all kinds of religious things and and they'll look at you and they'll talk to you ron or they'll talk to you joe and you know yeah joe that's what you think well this is what i think but the moment joe mentions jesus they no longer see you they now react to you based on what they think of him not you And we take it personally. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If that person you just shared with it doesn't like you, guess what? If they don't the reason they don't like you It's not personal. they don't like him. And this is why the disciples of old rejoiced when they were persecuted. Do you ever wonder why they rejoiced when they were persecuted? Why? Because it was a sign to them that they were more like him in the world. It was a sign to them that they were salty. It was a sign that they were a light in the darkness and people didn't like the light. We're going to look at that later on because Jesus talks in John chapter 3, the light shines in the darkness and it reveals what they're doing that they don't want people to see. Yeah. Yeah. So just because you're light doesn't mean people are going to like, want, want your light to shine, but he needs your light to shine because it gives them the opportunity to make a choice. We're going to pick up here next week. It's because you're identified with Christ. So keep your eyes on the identification. That's why you're separated, life, because He's separated. You're separated because you're in Him, not because He's telling us to live out there on our own. Let's pray. Father, we thank You tonight for Your grace and goodness. Lord, as we look at Your Word tonight and see what You've done and see the truth that we are in Christ tonight, I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would begin to make that clear to us. Because, Father, there's so many people out there tonight that are struggling to try to live up to some standard with you, that are struggling to try to be good enough, they're struggling with their weaknesses and saying, well, I can't ever do anything for you because I have trouble with this and I'm having trouble with this. Help them tonight to take their eyes off of what they're doing or not doing. Help them tonight to take their eyes off of their shortcomings and the way that they're falling short and they think they're failing. And help them to set their eyes on you and who you are and what you've done and how you've absorbed them into yourself. This is what the Apostle Paul learned, Lord, when he said, I've learned that my, in my weaknesses, to glory in my weaknesses, because in my weaknesses, your strength is made perfect. Why? Because your strength takes over. This is the, this is the sharing of the, of the yoke that Jesus, you called us to do, Lord. Open our eyes to change our self-image, to no longer see ourselves as separate and independent from you, but to see ourselves as joined to you. And Father, if tonight there's somebody here that's not joined to you through Christ, there's somebody here tonight that's out there living their life on their own and and, and they're not joined to you, help them tonight to see that, Father. And we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.